Well, good evening and good morning to all virtually. So good to be here. I can't, I can't tell you, I'm like super excited uh, to, to be up here preaching uh, tonight. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know me, as Matt mentioned, I'm a teaching elder here at Rio, and I'm going to just get the privilege of continuing our series uh, through All Things New, uh, where uh, we're looking at these two perspectives uh, of life. One perspective presented to us uh, by Solomon from the book of Ecclesiastes, and the other by the Apostle Paul presented to us in the book of Philippians. And, and I'll just be honest, we've got a lot of work to do today because we're taking a big chunk from Ecclesiastes, and we're we're going to take another big chunk from Philippians, and so we got to get to work. But before we do, before we jump to the text, I got just true confession, right? Not many people actually know this uh, about me, and I was even contemplating, should I, should I share this? Uh, but, but I'm going. So true confession, my, my fifth grade year, I decided for some reason to join the stamp club at my school. Um, and, and stamp club... Uh, for any of you who aren't familiar with, with Stamp Club, it's a club uh, or a group that you join to collect and trade postage stamps and other philatelic activities. And, and you might be asking yourself, a philatelic activity? What is that? Well, simply, it's a fancy word for collecting stamps and other postal material as, uh, as a hobby. So I joined the Stamp Club, and to be honest, I'm not sure of all the details surrounding what what, pers- what, what pushed me to make that decision and actually join it, it's a little cloudy. I do remember my parents, for whatever reason, were really supportive. They, they were pushing me even to the stamp club. And the only thing I can come up with is that it was kind of a safe hobby. And I was a bit of a handful growing up. And they just said, man, if, if, if we could just get David to sit down still for, for a few minutes, like it's worth it. And, and that's the only thing I can come up with. And here's the thing is it actually worked. Because truth, the truth be told, for a couple of minutes, I mean, I sat and I loved it. But after that, I mean, it got lame, like really, really quick. I mean, very soon I was like, I just can't get into this. I, I mean, I just, and honestly, I'm not sure how people do. And, and listen, if there's any stamp clubbers out there, I, I, p- please, I hope I'm not offending you. I know it's a very legitimate hobby. Uh, some people absolutely love it. For all of your information, there's actually 30 officially registered American Philatelic Society stamp clubs in Florida. And some of them are meeting virtually even now during the pandemic. So check it out if you're interested. All right. So this isn't a sermon about stamp club. So I'll, I'll kind of move on. Uh, it's it's not the best hobby, I guess, is my main my main point. But it's certainly not the worst hobby. Okay. I mean, I mean, perhaps a, a more worse hobby is uh, metal detecting. I mean, have you guys, I mean, I'll be honest, I won't lie about this either. Like, I've always had a, this kind of weird interest in metal detecting, but here's, here's the reality. I, I can't get into it because walking around with the constant beeping of the metal detector and then voluntarily submitting yourself to the scrutiny of being the metal detector guy, I just, I can't do it. It's another tough hobby. Again, if you're a metal detector guy or gal, no offense, it's just not for me. All right, now perhaps there's some others out there that, that I'm not thinking of, but the one hobby that I just, I don't get, right? One that just doesn't make sense has got to be Christianity. Now, hear me out on this. I'm not talking about anyone who is exploring Christianity, trying to figure out the Christian faith, seeking truth and answers. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. You're in the right place. If you're watching online, if you're here tonight, I'm so thankful that you're here. 
So I'm certainly not talking about that. But what I am talking about is that so many of us who are in the church, who are, who are believers and followers of Jesus, so many of us approach our pursuit of Jesus like a hobby. I mean, it's something that we fit in if and when we have some free time. I mean, it certainly isn't anything that steers our life. It's certainly not central to anything we really do. We've just kind of made it a hobby. But man, I, I just don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I, I mean, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he promised us in John chapter 10 that he came, that we might have life and have it abundantly. I mean, think about that. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly literally means superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon, over and above. So Jesus came that we might have an extraordinary, surpassing, over and above kind of life. I mean, does that describe your experience pursuing Jesus? See, throughout scripture, the the language used to describe the Christian life is anything but a hobby. I mean, indeed, and I think this is where we start missing it. The radical, transforming truth of the gospel is not a call to make Jesus a piece of your life. The, The call of the gospel to pursue Jesus and live in abundance with him doesn't mean you fit him into you, into your schedule where you can. It means you make him in your life everything he is. It means that your whole life is about one thing and everything is filtered through that one thing, namely Jesus. To know him, to pursue him, to grow in him, he's your goal. And you press and you pursue hard after him in your work, in your relationships, in your recreation. And that is when we can begin experiencing life in its abundance with joy and peace and satisfaction. But we miss it. We miss it. And we start, we start seeing this in our lives. We see it in the lives of those around us that we love. We, we seek pleasure from our work with wealth with fame, with entertainment, with power. And we believe that those things will give us the abundant life and the liberty and the happiness that our souls are desperately longing for. But truth is, we find ourselves still wanting, right? I mean, we find ourselves still searching. And that's exactly uh, the perspective of life that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So this isn't a unique experience to the 21st century. So I want to just take a minute to look at how Solomon describes the the pursuit of of earthly pleasures, we'll call it. And perhaps you can relate. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. 
Okay, so we'll pause there for for just a minute to try to put some context around what's going on. We know from chapter one that Solomon is 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 doing a bit of an experiment, right? He's he's going to see if there's anything under the sun, anything we do in our earthly pursuits that brings lasting meaning and, and ultimate satisfaction. And, and he begins fleshing out this experiment here in, in chapter two, and he starts by testing pleasure. He's saying in his heart, I'm going to test pleasure to see if that fills the hole. I'm going to use all my resources, my time, my focus, my energy to pursue what we pursue in this life to bring us pleasure, to consume as much of that as I possibly can. And he starts pursuing the pleasure of being entertained. Uh, of throwing parties, of laughter, uh, having a few drinks. It says, look, look how I was looking how to cheer my body. Literally, I, I was looking to have a good time. And I think we, we, can, we can get that. I mean, we can relate to that. I, I heard one commentator say, we live in the most entertained and available world that humanity has ever known. Yet we are more bored and frustrated than any generation before. Solomon keeps going. Verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. So, so he moves from pursuing the pleasure of being entertained and having a good time, and he starts pursuing the pleasure of building and working and accomplishment. And man, Solomon was an accomplished builder, and what he did during his reign as king was incredibly impressive. I mean, we know he built the temple, right, which was absolutely astonishing, something his father, King David, wasn't able to accomplish. It took him seven years to build that. Uh, we know he built his own palace. It actually took him 14 years to build his own palace, kind of put that in perspective. Uh, he planted forests. He, he made pools. Some actually believe that these three reservoir uh, pools located a few miles outside of Jerusalem. I think we're going to pull up a couple pictures here. Some believe that those were the pools referenced here uh, by King Solomon, a, b- a beautiful display, remarkable considering when it was built. And he begins describing this, this pleasure of accomplishment. And, and this pleasure in, in the satisfaction and, and the pleasure from the work of his hand. Like sitting back after a long day's work of, of accomplishing a, a killer deal that you just closed. Uh, accomplishing uh, uh, just a dramatic finish to, uh, to the end of your literature that you're writing. Whatever it might be, looking back and just saying, I have accomplished. And he's taking in the pleasure of that. And I'll be honest, if there's any earthly pleasure that I tend to make primary in my life. It's this one. Work and accomplishment. It just so quickly elevates to the primary place in my heart. I so easily sacrifice things that are more important and lay them down at the altar of work so I can feel the pleasure of that. Solomon continues, uh, verse 7, I I, uh, bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Uh, I'll stop there just quickly. Uh, 
Given our cultural context, anytime we hear uh, the word slave, it's an immediately disturbing thing. Uh, Mark, actually, our teaching elder who does our uh, personal worship, uh, made a brief comment on uh, this, very, this very verse in our personal worship, and I think he surmised it well. Uh, we're not going to kind of detract from what the main purpose is of the message, but super important to say that, one, the Old Testament slavery, uh, nothing like the, the slavery of the Africans in the American history. Um, uh, the slaves of that time were uh, more like servants uh, that, that worked uh, with Solomon, but not to, not to uh, justify it because it was wrong because these that were slaves were, were uh, labor on behalf of the king, but not by choice. And so it's something that I would certainly encourage all of you to study up on, to, to read about it because it's a really important topic to understand as we read through the Bible and we do see things like that. So wanted to mention that. Let's keep rolling. So I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So Solomon listing all of his pursuits of pleasure and saying, listen, I've arrived, I have achieved everything that you can imagine, all the success, the wealth that you can imagine. I was rich, I was famous, I had servants that had servants, I mean literally family units that were working and thriving under his care. He he said, listen, I had the life of ease and leisure. I could do nothing if I chose to do nothing. I had people to do things and to take care of whatever I needed to be taken care of. I didn't have to worry about a thing. Sounds like a dream. (laughs) Right? And Solomon's saying, listen, that's the everyday reality. And and then some. Pick up again in verse 8. So I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So Solomon speaking actually here to what he is most infamously known for. The man had 700 wives, 300 concubines. What he's describing here in this verse is, is really uninhibited sexual pleasure. Right? So there isn't a stone of pleasure that Solomon left unturned. And then he goes on in verse 9 that he's reached the pinnacle of fame. Everyone dreamed of the life that Solomon lived. I mean, Solomon had it all. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. He's saying, listen, I found pleasure in these things. Right? Anything you can imagine. I enjoyed it. There's nothing more that I could have achieved. And it's telling that Solomon mentions his heart five times in these verses. We, we saw it once in verse 1. Saw it twice in verse 3. We see it twice here again in verse 10 as he describes his pursuit of pleasure and fame. And here's the point I, I think he's trying to make. What you pursue is rooted in what you desire. And what you desire is controlled by what is primary in your heart. See, the heart is is the control center of the human being. 
right? It's the center of our emotions, of our thoughts, of our desires. And it's interesting that that the heart is discussed hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the Bible. It's a theme that's very well developed. And what we see and what essentially the Bible says about the heart is it's the steering wheel of the human being. The heart controls, shapes, and directs everything that you choose, say, and do. What controls the heart will therefore exercise unavoidable control over what we pursue in our lives as primary. And so what that means is the reason pursuing Jesus is relegated to a hobby in our life is because functionally, Our hearts hold all of these other pleasures, all of these other pursuits in our hearts in a higher place than the pleasure of pursuing Jesus. See, we believe functionally it's the answer to our hearts longing for significance, longing for meaning, longing for satisfaction, but it will always leave us wanting. Uh, Look how Solomon concludes in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It ultimately never satisfies. The pleasure is temporary. It's fleeting. I I love the quote uh, from actor Jim Carrey. And, And if you've been to Alpha, you've heard it before. But the quote goes like this. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. See, that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. It's, it's not the answer. He's saying, listen, you will never be fully satisfied looking at these pursuits for your ultimate satisfaction, finding and feeling pleasure in them. Yes. To some degree, but even having everything your eyes desire and keeping no pleasure from your heart and achieving it all will still leave you wanting. But man, we, we fool ourselves. And we just, we just keep chasing the wind. And we keep propping these things up in our hearts as primary. And we relegate pursuing Jesus into the hobby category because our heart loves and values these other things more. And see, only when we esteem God above all things will we pursue him as primary in our hearts and our lives with our time and our energy and our money and our strength. But I think the question that I was wrestling with through this week and as I prepared is like, well, okay, so how do we get there? Right? I mean, how do, we, how do we esteem God more than these other things? What do we need to do? I mean, what does it look like to pursue Jesus as primary in your life? What would it look like if we esteemed God above everything else? And that's exactly the journey that the Apostle Paul describes in chapter 3. So I want to spend some time fleshing this idea out uh, because he gives us like a how-to of, of pursuing Jesus as primary in our lives. And he fleshes out the characteristics of a life pursuing Jesus. So I want to pick up in Philippians chapter 3, and it's right where Pastor Tom left off last week. Uh, starting in verse 7, he said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the for sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, Paul is saying, listen, everything else in life, all these other pursuits of pleasure and fame that we seek, that we hold as primary in our hearts, I count them as rubbish because it all pales in comparison with knowing Jesus, with pursuing Jesus, the abundant life and satisfying pleasure of gaining Christ and being found in him through faith surpasses everything. And then Paul begins to list out these characteristics that I want to focus on. Four characteristics of pursuing Jesus as primary. The how-to of moving Jesus from a hobby into the primary position in your heart. All right, so let's take a look at it. Verse 12, the first thing we see is that we need to develop a holy dissatisfaction. We need to develop a holy dissatisfaction. Check it out. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. So Paul's yearning, uh, as he's describing, his passionate pursuit of Jesus rises out of a holy dissatisfaction with his pursuit of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I haven't obtained it. I'm not there. And think about who's saying this. It's the Apostle Paul uh, of all people. I mean, he was the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Uh, at the stage that he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he's been a Christian for 30 years. He's the epitome uh, of Christian maturity. He's given us memorable passages of Scripture, like to live as Christ and to die as gain, that I've, I've, I've learned the secret of contentment and, and that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, it's that Paul. And he's saying, I haven't made it. I'm still not there. I do not yet know the fullness of his beauty, the wonder of all he is. I haven't arrived. There's a holy dissatisfaction. He's saying, I'm pressing on, though, to make it my own. And the word that Paul uses that's translated here, pressing, uh, press on, it's actually translated earlier in chapter 3 as persecuted. And it's an interesting word. Uh, it literally means to pound or to beat. And so you feel like the strongest language that Paul could possibly use saying, listen, I haven't made it, but I'm pressing hard. I mean, Paul is radically dissatisfied with his pursuit of Jesus, with his knowledge of God. He has this all-consuming passion to know him more and to know him in bigger and brighter and deeper ways. He's saying, I press on to make it my own. But get this, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love the NIV translation. It tells us, I, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. All right, so let's listen to this, church. Because this is crazy important. Paul is saying that my pressing on, 
right? Our pressing on, taking hold, yearning, striving after Jesus, our, our holy dissatisfaction is the result of and caused by Jesus' striving and yearning and taking hold of me. Christ didn't take hold of me because I took hold of him. He took hold of me, therefore I now take hold of him. That's the Christian life. I am pressing hard, trying to grasp the wonder and the beauty of that which has grasped me. Do you ever experience that kind of holy dissatisfaction? And I think it's also important to to note here, I'm not talking about a a sinful spiritual discontentment, right? Where where your life is filled with anxiety or filled with fear and guilt that you think God is constantly angry with you or upset at you because you're not doing the things that you think and know you should and you're not growing like you think and know you should. Not that kind of dissatisfaction, but a holy dissatisfaction that desperately wants to worship more boldly. Uh, a holy dissatisfaction that says, I want to know Jesus more and love him more deeply than I currently am. A holy dissatisfaction because your heart has been radically gripped and taken hold of by Jesus. And as a result of being overwhelmed by his grace, your heart desperately longs to grasp the height, the depth, the, the width and length of his love. Gripped by the reality that Christ Jesus has made you his own. And this, re- this reality that his striving and pressing after you is that he will not rest. He will, he will not relent until he has perfected in you a completely pure and clean heart. And so as a result of being grasped by him, and to the extent that we get that, your entire life, everything begins pressing toward him, trying to grasp more fully that which has grasped you. So our passionate pursuit of Jesus rises from a holy dissatisfaction of our pursuit of Jesus. So I want to keep moving because the second characteristic we see in verses 13 and 14. Uh, Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the second characteristic of this passionate pursuit of Jesus is to forget what lies behind and keep straining forward to what lies ahead. You say, okay, well, so what, what is Paul uh, talking about uh, and, and what, what does he mean by forget what lies behind? Well, what we know, is, is what he can't mean because of what the rest of Scripture says, uh, what Paul isn't saying is, well, never look back, never remember, don't think about anything in your past as if there's no place for remembrance. We know that that's not the case because throughout the scripture, we see God telling his people to remember. So we know that he's saying, don't, don't remember anything. Never look back like that. Rather, what he means is forget anything from your past that is getting in the way of your passionate pursuit of Jesus now. Whether it's failure, whether it's victory, If it's keeping you from yearning and keeping you from that holy dissatisfaction, forget it. 
I mean, spiritual victories, right? Successes. He can be a, a good memory of God's grace in your life, but those memories can also make you self-satisfied and stagnant. Paul's saying, forget it. You, you can't let your past victories rob you of your present, passionate, longing, yearning after Jesus. And, and we can't let our, our past failures rob us of the same. I, I mean, I know I can relate to that. I think we all can relate to that. Failures can absolutely paralyze you, right? They can leave you feeling hopeless, stagnant in our pursuit of Jesus. One of the most, one of the most powerful lies of the evil one in, in thwarting a believer's passionate pursuit of Jesus is that we shouldn't approach God or we can't pursue Jesus because we fell into sin and, and, and we fell short, as if there's ever a day that we don't, right? I mean, do you think that when you first came to Jesus, like so, so, so boldly, so vulnerably, do you think that you were squeaky clean and deserving in that moment? No, you, you weren't any more worthy then, and then now all of a sudden you start struggling, and God's like, sorry, you're unworthy. Now listen, like, we were never worthy. You're never there, but now being found in him, being clothed in his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus that depends on faith, God looks down and he sees this beautiful, radiant perfection and holiness of Jesus and he says, you're my child and I love you. So forget anything that lies behind, both failures and victories that rob you of your passionate pursuit of Jesus now. Press on toward the goal and strain forward to what lies ahead. And Paul continues to elaborate in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul's saying this is how we ought to be thinking and living. This is what it looks like to pursue Jesus as primary. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So in other words, strain forward to what lies ahead, living out what we know to be ours in Christ. It's this idea that, yes, I, I know I'm found in him with a righteousness that's not my own. Yes, my sins have been completely forgiven, past, present, future, nailed to the cross. Yes, Jesus has taken hold of me. Yes, I belong to him, but I'm going hard after more because there's always more of Jesus to enjoy. I'm pressing on to win the prize because it's the only thing in life that really matters. I've reoriented my entire life, all other pursuits of pleasure, my relationships, my work, my values, everything shaped by and lived out through the lenses of who I am and what I have obtained in Christ. So characteristics of that passionate pursuit of Jesus, develop a holy dissatisfaction, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And thirdly, Surround yourself with and imitate those who are imitating Jesus. All right, check this out. Verse 17, brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was chatting with my brother-in-law, and we'd been commenting, actually, on how our kids seem to be so motivated by money. And it was, it's, I married into a pretty big family, got 11 cousins that live locally. And one of my sisters-in-law organized a little one-mile race for all the cousins a few weekends ago. And the first place was going to win $20, uh, second place was going to win 15 and third place was going to win 10 And you would have thought that they had an opportunity to win a fortune and make the Olympic cross-country team, or I guess a mile. It's not cross-country. It's only a mile. But you know what I mean. I mean, the competitive drive and push from each of these kids was wild. And so my brother-in-law were talking uh, afterwards, and, and we were commenting about how we never had to teach our kids to be motivated by money. We never sat down and said, now, kids... This is what you need to to desire. This is what you need to value. But here's the reality. We didn't need to. Because see, and it was humble to, to recognize this. What our kids learn is caught as much as it is taught. And the same is true for Christian character. Right? I mean, it's it's caught as much as it is taught. And see, the bottom line is we learn from others, whether consciously or sometimes unconsciously by imitation. And and so the question is not if, but what are you learning and from whom are you learning it? And so Paul says, listen, learn from me. Not because I have it all figured out. He's not a spiritual guru who's claiming some sort of full enlightenment or something. I mean, what we've been rehearsing is that he hasn't arrived. And yet he's straining to know more and more of Jesus. So he's saying, surround yourself and imitate those kinds of people. Believers who are passionately pursuing Jesus. Get around it. And listen, this is, this is crazy practical. Listen, husbands, surround yourself with brothers in Christ who are passionately pursuing Jesus. And it's exemplified in the way that, you would, that they adore their wives and love their wives as Christ commands it. Get around it. Keep your eyes on that. Imitate that. Parents, surround yourself with Christian parents who are pursuing Jesus and it's exemplified in the way that they're nurturing their kids with the gospel and, and love them the way that Jesus calls them to. Get around it. Singles, surround yourself with other believers who are pursuing Jesus and it's exemplified in the way that they're living out their singleness. Businessmen and women, I mean, we could keep going. Be in fellowship with other believers pursuing Jesus and who exemplify that pursuit by the way that they conduct themselves in work and how they honor God with their decisions and their business practices. Get around it. We need to get around those Christians who humbly think of themselves less and self-sacrificially demonstrate genuine love and concern for those around them. Because of their ever-deepening love for Jesus, we need to get around that. We need to imitate that. We need to find that. Paul's saying, imitate me. Because listen, it, it works the other way as well. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Sounds similar to Ecclesiastes 2. Right? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Paul's saying, listen, there's those that they set their minds on earthly things. Their, their God is their belly, living to satisfy any and all of those appetites, pursuing pleasures that are only temporary, things that will never ultimately satisfy, living as if this world is as good as it gets. What we learn is caught as much as it is taught. So we need to surround ourselves with and imitate those who are imitating Jesus. That's what a passionate pursuit of Jesus looks like. That's the how-to of moving Jesus from a hobby in your heart to primary. And we're going to finish with the fourth characteristic that we see uh, starting in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul insists that a passionate pursuit of Jesus is characterized not with our mindset on earthly things, but by the fourth thing we learn here is living in light of Jesus's return. It's a kind of pursuit that understands the best is yet to come, that, that this isn't it, <laughs> that this isn't home, that this earthly body In this fallen and broken world where death wreaks havoc, where there are wars and tears and racial tensions and sufferings and racism and pandemics and uncertainty and fear, it's not all that there is. That we are living for a far better day where all of that is wiped away. A heart that's passionately pursuing Jesus is a heart that is set to that day. The set heaven word, investing in his kingdom, for that's our true home. That's our citizenship. This is where your eyes should be. This is where our hearts should be. Now listen, we're not there yet. And so we cry out with all of creation, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we live with our hearts and minds and eyes not set on earthly things, but set heavenward, living in light of his return. So where are your eyes? Where have you set your mind? Can you see anything past this life? Can you see anything past today? Because the day is coming. So the characteristics of a heart passionately pursuing Jesus develop a holy dissatisfaction by knowing that Jesus has grasped you and made you his own. Secondly, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
surrounding ourselves with and imitating those who are imitating Jesus and living in light of Jesus's return. Let those characteristics mark our lives and the way that we pursue our relationships, our work, our city, and our world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thankful for your word. Lord, we we very easily relate to everything that Solomon described. Lord, we we pursue pleasures that, that really do satisfy something, a feeling that we enjoy, an accomplishment that we value, and not that those are horrible things for the most part, Lord, but but they're not ultimate. Only you can satisfy. And so, Lord, I pray that you, by your grace, work so deeply in our hearts that we leave here transformed, pursuing you more faithfully, pursuing you more passionately, pursuing you as primary in our hearts and in our life. Give the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.